Okay, everybody, welcome. Wonderful to see you. I've got some handouts here, which I think most people sitting at these tables have got one of. I'm not sure whether the hamburger team, sorry, the... Um, uh, yeah, that's right, it's them that, that is bringing only enough Kincaid's burgers for them, the Bible study. It's like, there's like the dozens of people here. Uh, do you need a handout, or are you okay? You, you need one? I'm going to put them down here. So, Jacob can come collect them. All right, welcome everybody, it's great to see you. We've got a lot to cover this evening. Um, and I kind of find myself thinking, if I'm saying that, we probably ought to get started. Um, so we'll begin. Um, if you are at home uh, watching this, then I hope you have discovered in your inbox the email that I sent out about an hour ago that has this attachment in it. It's a two-side handout, uh, and it's a PDF, so hopefully you can at least view that, and it will be helpful, because especially at the beginning, when we're looking at two passages side by side, you might find that useful, and of course, it's good to scribble on and see where we're going. And we are thinking tonight about the covenant with Noah. So let me pray and I'll just introduce where we are and where we got to and what we're doing and so on and so forth. And then we will jump straight in. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, thank you for your sovereign providence, power and goodness displayed throughout the whole history of the created order. And as we seek to uncover what it is that you are doing in history so that we can understand our own times and our own lives better. We pray that you would give us insight into your word. We pray that you'd help us to see new things and to piece together familiar and perhaps some unfamiliar fragments of the Bible in such a way that we come to understand what it is that you're up to in history and so that we can see what it is that Christ has accomplished and what it is we may confidently and faithfully expect to see him do in our day and for many generations to come. Help us, we pray, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so just a quick recap, just to spin the wheels up and get us back up to speed. We're exploring the subject of eschatology, which, as I've mentioned before, is properly understood as the Christian doctrine of history. It's the answer to the question, what is God doing throughout time, from the beginning of all things up to the coming of Christ, our time now and into the future. And so while it is right to a certain extent to think of eschatology as the last things, we're not restricting ourselves just to a kind of piecemeal discussion of pre-post and amillennialism and then whatever that dispensation thing allism is. Because what we need to do really is to build the foundations and then actually the eschatological conclusions will just drop out so straightforwardly, you'll wonder why anybody could ever think anything different. Believe me, I find myself thinking the same thing sometimes. People are not stupid, but sometimes what people do is that they try and jump into the Bible without building the proper foundations. And so we've been going right back to the beginning. And you remember that before we even got to thinking about creation, what I wanted to highlight for you is the relationship between God and creation. So it is right to understand created history as a revelation of God's character. So we might even be so bold as to infer things about the shape of history from things that we know from Scripture to be true about God. That was the first session. Then second, we looked in Genesis 1 at the things God had made. And we noticed not only is that foundational for understanding where we come from, it's actually foundational for understanding the shape of history as well because the things that God made in Genesis 1 
are taken up as symbolic elements to history later. God uses those things as the one who is sovereign over history, and he talks about those things as the one who is the author of Scripture. And all of the images, all of the images in Genesis chapter 1 that flow from the things that God has made speak in one way or another about a glorious, growing future, a future in which God's glory is more widely seen, in which more people come to know and love him, and so on and so forth. So then we jumped into really the first chapter of the unfolding relationship or covenant between God and his people. And we embarked on what is technically called covenant, a study of covenant theology. Covenant theology is the study of God's unfolding covenants or relationships throughout uh, the history of humanity from Adam onwards up to the present. A covenant is just a particular kind of relationship. Marriage is a kind of covenant because it contains well-defined expectations, promises, sanctions for failing to meet those expectations, the promise of blessings given and received from each other. And it's ratified in a ceremonial act of giving and receiving a ring and of making promises before God and his people. So it's, it's like a relationship, but it's a particular kind of relationship. So what we're in the business of doing from lo- two weeks ago, so last time onwards, is mostly answering this question. How does God's relationship with people and particularly his chosen people, develop through time? And you can see if we can answer that question, obviously we'll be able to answer questions about our future because we'll be able to see how we expect God's relationship with created people to be in the future, but you'll see that we need to build that on a foundation of understanding what happens in the first chapter of human history, Genesis chapter 1. And last time, I was thinking back, I know one or two people found it helpful. I suspect one or two people perhaps didn't find it so helpful, for which I apologise. The kind of three-by-three grid where I tried to uh, highlight that the particular calling that God gave to Adam and Eve could be viewed as uh, three uh, offices, priest, king, prophet, and also in three uh, vocations, work, Marriage, and who remembers what the third one was? Rest. Rest. Very good. Rest. Work, rest, marriage, or marriage and children, if you like. And so that generates a three-by-three grid, and the mathematically-minded among us, of which I'm afflicted, I apologise, are tempted to think of it in that way. Uh, But if, if it's not helpful for you to think like that, then think of it in another way. God gave to Adam and Eve three jobs to do. Now, to fill the earth by marriage and child rearing, to work in the world, to bring a good, raw, young world to better, mature fullness and to rest and enjoy the world that God had placed them in. And he gave them three kind of roles in which to fulfill those offices. There's a prophetic, priestly and kingly role you might take in each of those areas. And I'm not going to go over all that again. But that's the covenant with Adam and Eve. And we... And One reason why I don't regret that too much is that we're going to keep coming back to it, at least today in the first few minutes, because we're going to be exploring how that particular relationship is connected with the next big chapter in the story, the covenant or relationship that God establishes with Noah and his family and their offspring.
And that brings us to, we're now in the introduction, second point, little bullet point there. It brings us to a central principle, absolutely critical, foundational principle for understanding absolutely everything about God's relationship with people through history, which is to say pretty much everything. There exists in the historical unfolding of God's relationship with his people, continuity and development. I want to speak about this for a moment or two. Continuity. That is to say, God doesn't just wake up on Tuesday and discard what he did on Monday. God doesn't turn around in the second generation and forget about what he'd done in the previous generation. God doesn't turn around in the days of Noah and throw out everything that had previously been established in the days of Adam. On the contrary, God is the God of history. Think about that for a second. History is continuous. Time is a continuum. And so God doesn't do something at one time which is fundamentally unrelated to what he's doing at another time. There's a single story. People sometimes, in, I've seen this in children's books about um, history, they talk about history as his space story. Have you seen that? And it's slightly hackneyed, I think, but actually it's quite, it's quite good. It's certainly theologically true. It's, history is the story or the narrative, it's a true story, <laughs> um, of what God is doing throughout time. And God doesn't just do unrelated random things. Which means that what God's doing in the days of Noah is going to be connected with what he's already done in the days of Adam. But it's not going to be the same. There will be development. There will be change. There will be things that are different about the relationship he establishes in the days of Noah from what the relationship was like in the days of Adam. You see what I'm saying? And actually, the best illustration I can think of is just to think of a child growing up. And I'm looking around here at a bunch of families, and some of you are are, with your parents. And and you you can remember, perhaps, how they used to treat you when you were 15, and and when you were 11, and when you were 6, and maybe when you were a bit younger. And you can remember how they treat you now. Obviously, you know who you... And there's some continuity, isn't there? You're still called the same name. And maybe you still greet them in a similar way. And you still, if you're at the family table, you still have similar kind of ways of eating together. Maybe you even sit in the same place around the table where you used to sit, yeah? Some of these people will sit in the same place in church for, you know, a thousand generations or whatever. Um, But there's difference, isn't there? Yeah? There is, you know, uh, different things are expected of you. You're expected perhaps to pay rent now. And your mum and dad are like, oh, that's a great idea. (laughs) Like, no, don't tell them that. Um, you're expected to go out to work or to be studying independently and you're given greater freedom and you have greater responsibility. And that's actually a very good image for thinking about how God raises humanity. Adam was the baby. And Noah is the archetypal next installment. Of course, there were people between Adam and Noah, but Noah is the next big deal. And so what I've done... To highlight this is to set out on the first page of this handout for your, 
for you to compare what we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and what God says to Noah in Genesis 9. Now, in order to introduce this, well, I'm, t- I'm just going to talk you briefly through that portion of Scripture, and we'll, we'll look at this in more detail when we flip over the page. But you remember basically what happens, okay? The, the relationship between God and his people, Adam and Eve, is established in Genesis chapter 1, day 6. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, after the seventh day rest narrative, then retells a portion of Genesis chapter 1, but calling attention particularly to what God is doing with Adam and Eve. And you've got the the making of Eve and how how that's done and the gift of marriage and so on and so forth. And then in chapter 3, it all starts starts to go off the rails. You've got uh, Adam and Eve's rebellion against God in the garden. And the, the rebellion, I think, is a better term than the fall. The fall makes it sound like, oh, we just slipped up there. Rebellion is what it was. Uh, but I'm not going to try and change the vocabulary that's used to describe it. The, the, the great first sin in Genesis 3. Uh, Genesis 4, you have Cain and Abel, and they kind of continue along that sinful trajectory, as do their offspring um, and uh, the, the other people who are, who are named and described there. Then Genesis chapter 5, you have this... Um, appallingly kind of somber recitation of all these people and how long long they lived. And at the end of every section, it says, and then they died, and then he died, and then he died. And it's like, well, that's what you'd expect, given Genesis 3, because in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, Genesis 2. So, And then what happens, you get to Genesis 6, and man began to multiply on the face of the earth. You've got this strange thing with the sons of God and daughters of men. Maybe we'll look at that briefly if you want to. But basically what happens is Genesis 6, 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, which is is quite bad. And the Lord was sorry that he'd made man on the earth. It grieved him. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. And you think, well, that that didn't last very long, did it? That experiment. But, verse 8, Noah found grace. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that that begins the Noah narrative. And this is the famous section, Genesis 6 through 9, where Noah is um, described. uh, He's instructed to build an ark. He's warned of the coming uh, judgment in the form of a flood. He and his family are kept safe in in the ark. There's him and his wife, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives, so eight people. And then you've got the narrative of the flood, Genesis 7 and 8. And at the end of that, they're basically back on dry land again, uh, a sacrifice offered. And then chapter 9, they, they, so to speak, they're stepping out into the world again in much the same kind of way that Adam stepped out into the world eight chapters before. And the question is, okay, what, what's God going to say? What is, he going to, is it going to be a totally different project this time? Or is it going to be exactly the same project? Or is it going to be something in between? And of course, you know, it's something in between. Continuity with development. So you know Genesis 1, 26 to 28. We looked at that last time. Let me read now Genesis 9, 1 to 7. And we'll, what, I'm, what I'm going to ask you to do is to highlight for me the differences and the similarities. And to help you, I've laid them out in parallel columns and I've broken them up a little bit to give you a hint about where, where some of the salient... Uh, chunks in the text are. And you can tell me what's similar. Right. Okay, ready? So Genesis 9, verse 1. 
And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, a reference to Genesis 1, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Notice a little chiasm. (laughs) Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. There you are. God can't help himself, can he? For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. All right, so you see what we're doing? I want you to tell me, that's right, I want you to tell me what's similar in 9, 1 to 7 and what's different. So let's go through it one chunk at a time. You see what I'm asking you to do? Have a look at the first chunk. Where have you seen that before? And God blessed Noah and his sons. Does that look like anything that you've seen before? Genesis 1.28. Right, Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them. You can see that, right? Genesis 1.28. On the left-hand side, just over halfway down, and God blessed them. Exactly the same or different? Mm -hmm. How different, Anne? Noah's got sons. So previously, God blessed Adam and Eve, yes? God blessed them and said, be fruitful and fill the earth, and so on and so forth. Now he blessed Noah and his sons. What does that tell you? It tells you something very significant which we're going to look at in more detail later. God expanding his promises to whom precisely? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I got so excited at that point. I just, all the words, you know when all the words come out in one go? And they're, they're, def, they're definitely supposed to be separate, aren't they? It's eschatology, yeah? So one at a time. Thank you very much, Mr. Loki. Exactly right. What was it you said? I can't remember. Generations, that was it. And his sons. So important. You don't know for sure, explicitly in black and white, from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, that the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve will experience that same blessing, do you? But now you do. Here's a hint of a, a development which is becoming more clear, more explicit, more blessing. This is going to go down through the generations. Now, you could probably have figured it out from Genesis 1, because what's God going to do? Tell him to fill the earth with people who aren't blessed? Give me a break. But we know that because we know the character of God, in part from these later installments of his relationship with his people. And so here you're seeing it in black and white. And his sons. Right, what's next? And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Second half of 28. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Exactly the same. How does Genesis 1.28 go on? Fill the earth and subdue it. 
and have dominion over it. What does that mean? We talked about that, didn't we? It means fruitful work, yeah? It means take control. This world is beautiful, but it's wild. And you've got to take control of it and subdue it and have dominion over it and bring its latent fruitfulness out. Fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 9 doesn't say that. Anne, what is it? You've got your hand up. Right. So, so military. Typical men, right? It's for wanting to smash things up, right? You weren't, you weren't saying that, right? Of course you were. It's really, yeah, you, you've, yeah, you put your hand on it, your, your hand on it, your finger on it, and you nailed it, you sledgehammered it, right? Look, think, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue. It's like you're going to go out there and you're going to be able to take control. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Oh. Oh, that's a shame. It's like there's a hint in Genesis 9 that this subduing the earth business might turn out to be a bit more tricky. Yes? Why might that be? But it says that the animals will be afraid of them, so that's helpful. Right, the animals will be afraid of them, but it's not like, hey, and the lions are like, what? Okay. You know? You know what I mean? Can you imagine subduing lions if all you had to do was like with, Mr., uh, with Pastor Neil's dog? Like, Lucy, you can sort of do that thing that John does and, it, and Lucy goes up on her hind legs and does a little dance around you. We've never done it for me. I mean, she gets really scared when she hears my accent, I think. But it's very interesting that what's happened here is what previously was an implicit promise that you're going to be able to take control of all this wild stuff and make it wonderful. Now, well, there's no promise of that. Subdue isn't mentioned. Instead, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, rather than dominion over the fish of the sea and birds of the heavens and over every living thing, etc. Can you see the contrast? So you've got Adam, it's like you'll have this effortless but nonetheless enjoyably effortful task to call the world into order. And it's going to be great. And then you've got the sin of Genesis 3. You've got thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. In pain you will bring forth children. And in Genesis 9... The fear of you and the dread of you will be upon the animals and you're going to conquer them. Into your hand they'll be delivered. You'll be able to take control, but it's not quite... You don't want to have a pet dog that's frightened of you, right? You want a pet dog that's like Lucy. With a, where there's a... Almost, almost having a pet dog starts to look like a picture of redemption in, in Christ or something, doesn't it? Because it's like the... I'm not suggesting that it is, but it's not, it's not you are, yeah? <laughs> but it's like, this is the creation responding to the man and the woman. And they're not responding to Noah. They're, they're fearful. And he's going he's gonna to have to smash them, to beat them into submission. It's, it's, maybe that's an overstatement, a slight overstatement. But it's, can you see? It's more edgy. There's tension is exactly what you'd expect from a world filled now with thorns and thistles because of sin. You ever found your work frustrating? Like you work in a bank or something. 
wouldn't it be wonderful to work at a sinless bank with sinless clients? And you come in and they're always grumpy and you're never fast enough and you're always at fault for all their, their mistakes. And they're the customer and the customer is always right, even when they're wrong. Yeah, so it's just very frustrating. And, and so this, what you're experiencing is noaic frustration. We've had Mr. Haskell here, maybe he and um, Mrs. Haskell are listening. We could, they could regale us with accounts of being a rancher in a fallen world. It'd be so easy to be a rancher if you could just go, and all the cattle come trotting up, wouldn't it? Yeah? Now, can you see the differences? Okay, verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Now, what's different there from Genesis 1? Evelyn, you made the mistake of catching my eye. Right? Very good. So they've been thrown out of the garden, so the Lord doesn't need to say, don't touch that tree. Well, there's also been a flood in the meantime, which has probably changed the, uh, the local you know, horticulture a little bit. What, do, what are they allowed to eat now? Everything. Yeah, everything. Thank you very much. So, so what's happened? Previously, you get to eat the green plants. Broccoli. Wonderful. <laughs> Great. Now, you get to eat brisket. It's like moving from California to Texas, isn't it? It's like, this is awesome. Can you see the, you see the difference? What, what's happened? More freedom. It's like further development in their mastery of the created order, of their capacity to take control of it and so on. So there's progress. Even in spite of the fact that they're kind of having to fight against the creation a little bit more. Uh, Let's go down to verse 4. It's interesting. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Well, that's weird. And if if the Bible stopped here, you wouldn't have a clue what that's about. We only really get to discover what that's about in Leviticus, because most of the answers are in Leviticus. Because whoever reads Leviticus, so all the things you don't know are probably in there. Um, And maybe a bit later, yeah, Sarah. Yeah, so the numbers all Leviticus, right? Because they're the two books that people don't read. That and Judges, right? And so if, you, if there's something you don't know, it's probably in there. Um, it's just statistics, isn't it, right? Um, but yeah, I did say numbers last time. So. Um, I mean, it's to do with sacrifice. The life of the creature is in the blood. But more significantly, perhaps, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. Now, what's going on here? From every beast, I will require it, and from man... From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Little chiasm. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed. Now, what's all that about? Verses 5 and 6. What's going on? Somebody paraphrase it for me or explain it. Yeah, Evelyn. Right. If you murder somebody, if you take a man's blood or a person's blood, then by man shall your blood be shed. Yeah. Now, why is that not in Genesis 1? Right, there's, no, there's no bloodshed in Genesis 1. This is clack on. There's no sin there. So can you see what God's doing? It's a very subtle point that the Lord is making here. He's like, yeah, you've, you've made a real mess of this, haven't you? 
you, bunch of muppets. Now, what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to structure my relationship with you and your relationship with each other to protect you from yourselves, to put in place structural disincentives for sin just to go haywire and wild. Because we know what happens, don't we, if you've got people in a sinful world. Because we tried that experiment. You've got Adam and Eve, and then you've got Cain and Abel, which is, it didn't go so well. So how is the Lord going to um, structure human society? And some theologians will even trace to this the kind of prototype for human government in the shape of um, legislation for capital punishment. How are we going to structure society so that people don't keep doing the Genesis 4 thing and hacking their brother to death the whole time when they're jealous of him? Well, we'll have to have some kind of civil or social sanctions. It's really fascinating to me to, to think about um, civil law in this way. Because what you realize is that laws to govern the city, a community of people, are supposed to be, and they were initially given with the purpose of being, an act of God's grace. They're there to protect you from my sin. In my best moments, I would never you know, steal your car or break into your house and steal your life savings. But in my worst moments, I'm more than capable of that. Sorry. We, we, we need protecting from each other's worst, worst moments. And it's an act of God's grace and his kindness. Now, of course, what happens is that whenever you give people an inch, they take a mile. And so the people responsible for administering the civil sphere will tend over time to arrogate to themselves more power. Yeah, and, and you see actually that during the history of Israel, and you see, you see it today as well. But here, the, the, the relationship is developing so as to put in place structures for human society which will prevent us from destroying the project. Because if everybody's dead, the world isn't going to be filled with us. You with me? It's, see it in that context. It's God wants the world to be filled, which is not best accomplished by having no sanctions against murder. So let's have some sanctions against murder. Let's deal with sin properly. Yeah, Mrs. Clark. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it, it's, it's likely at the very least that the middle of verse 5, from every beast I will require it, is in the context of a beast causing harm to a, a person. And it might be other things as well. And by implication, you might infer from this that there ought to be sanctions against other crimes as well, perhaps. You, and especially in the light of the rest of Scripture, you could infer that. But it's hard not to see Exodus 21 here, isn't it? Where you've got a bull that's in the habit of goring and, well, you're the owner, you should have penned it up. So now you're responsible and the beast needs to be killed. Right. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, then the end, uh, the, the next little section, for God made man in his own image. Can you see that? Where, where have you seen that before? Right, so that's in Genesis 1. So that looks very familiar. But notice the completely different context now. Previously, the context is in verse 27, is this beautiful little poem 
perhaps the first real poem in the Bible. Um, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Image, image. And um, in verse 26, also the image and likeness are made. And this is like an expression of the, isn't it wonderful what God has done in making the, the, the crown of creation? That's Genesis 1. Genesis 9, it's like, okay, I've got to stop you guys smashing each other's heads in with rocks because God made man in his image. Genesis 1, it's, you're so precious because God's made you. Genesis 9, it's, you're so precious, I've got to stop you beating each other up and killing each other because that would be bad. So the the framing is different. The, The reality is the same. And, of course, what that means then is that we have some new ways that we've got to think about honoring the image of God. We honour the image of God by all of the implications of the sixth commandment, for example. And we talked about that, some of the younger, Jack, in the Ten Commandments class have been doing um, some of that stuff. And our Puritan forefathers saw in the sixth commandment, don't murder, a whole bunch of stuff about preserving life and preserving human dignity, remember? And um, uh, giving people the best opportunity to uh, enjoy their life. That's part of what's behind the sixth commandment. So it all comes back to here. Yeah, you see that? Good. And then finally, verse 7. Similar or different? And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Look carefully. Yes. The English, you notice that here, team on the earth is, I think that, I didn't even have time to check this, or rather I didn't think to check it, my fault. Um, I think that's the same verb that's used to describe what insects do. Have you ever ever had, hmm? Uh, Yeah, fish, fish and insects. Yeah, Um, I think, I'm not sure. But the idea, if you have, you know, you kick a fire ant's nest, what happens? Right, they're everywhere. That's not just multiplying, that's teeming, a teeming horde of, of insects. So what's interesting here, the be fruitful and multiply, it's like God has just slapped this into overdrive and stepped on the gas. Team on the earth and multiply it. It looks like, so you, you might fear that the entrance of sin into the world is going to, especially because murder and stuff, is really going to put a dampener on human growth and maturing and filling the earth. And it seems that's a possibility. So God puts this legislation in place in verses 5 and 6. But then he's, he's saying, look, don't give up. Don't, um, don't imagine that the... Um, the goodness of multiplying and indeed the possibility of multiplying is somehow undermined by sin. I've just told you I'm going to bless your sons as well as you. What a wonderful thing. Even in the days of Noah to bring into the world new people. Now, of course, we're still in the days of Noah, but can you see what we're doing is we're creating a trajectory, yeah? It's good to fill the world, Genesis 1. 
And we should expect to have it teeming, like when you kick a fire ant's nest and there's ants everywhere, Genesis 9. And so we're creating this trajectory. So no surprise when you get to the Psalms and uh, Psalm 127, 128, the, the blessing of children and so on. And in Genesis 12, where we're going to get to soon, not this week, um, God promises, Genesis 12, Genesis 17, there's a promise that God would um, bless the offspring of Abraham. So on. Children are a blessing from the Lord. I'm listening to a podcast at the moment. The only podcast I subscribe to, and I don't recommend this to everybody. I, I wouldn't recommend it really to many people at all. But the only podcast I subscribe to is Sam Harris's podcast. That's right, the atheist guy. And um, uh, the reason why, actually, is because I think he's about the most articulate and interesting and varied atheist out there. And he just gets all the most interesting people on it I've come across. And, um, and I kind of think, as a pastor particularly, I want to be able to articulate a vision for the Christian life that will stand up against that. I don't want to give you something that will only be able to knock down a straw man. I want to give you something that's substantial. So listening to Sam talking with some of his guests is really salutary because I think I need to work harder at my articulation of a Christian way of life. Now, his current, uh, one of, he's got two podcasts. One of them is like a Greatest Hits podcast, and he's talking to this guy whose name I forget, South African professor of philosophy, who espouses a view known as anti-natalism. You come across this? It's the view that it would be better if people were not born. It doesn't imply that it would be better for those who are already alive to lose their lives or take their lives, but he's arguing that it's better that we're... It would be better not to bring any more people into the world. And he's got a whole bunch of arguments about this. And looking at your faces and thinking, you, every one of us has a kind of visceral, that can't be right, reaction, yeah, to that? Um, and the visceral reaction is correct. And where it comes from is your sanctified instincts hardwired into you is Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. And a bunch of other stuff in the scriptures, right? Where the blessing of, for, for those able to have children, the blessing of, of having and raising children. Um, but you, we, we've got to know that that's not something to be taken for granted. I think this guy is an example of what happens when you have one bad idea and then you become a philosophy professor. It's like, man, you, what, a, what, a, what a life, eh? Anyway, um, I forget his name, but uh, yeah, his name is not consequential. Um, what's significant is, let's, let's not take this for granted. God could have said what this guy said in one of his opening arguments was, you know, there's just so much suffering in the world and there's an asymmetry. You know, suffering is so much worse than pleasure is good. And for somebody who is suffering really, really badly, it would be better if they had never been born. That's one of his many arguments. No, it's just interesting. I can think of somebody who suffered more than anybody else. <laughs> And it's a jolly good thing he'd been born. Yeah? So, um, anyway, we can talk about that another time. Anyway, let me pause. And you can see the contrast. You see the, the basic shape of what God's doing in the days of Noah. It's developing relationship. And many of the same themes are being taken up and re-articulated in the light of sin or in the light of the unfolding of God's plan. Yeah, Evelyn. I just had something about the teams. 
Yeah, yeah. You've got an app. Man, you don't even need a pastor if you've got an app. Yeah, yeah, increased greatly is teamed. Yeah, that's, I remember it now. Yes, yes. Yeah. Fish, teeming. Yeah, and that, the, the fish teeming in the, the Dead Sea that used to be salty and is now fresh because the water of the Spirit now fills it. Yeah. Um, I remember now where I heard this. I heard this from my Old Testament professor, Thomas Rents, who now going to be going back to the college where I was at, at seminary, and my other Old Testament professor is going to be the principal of the college. I heard this last week, or two weeks ago. James Robson is going to be principal, Thomas Rents is going to be the new Old Testament professor, and England is going to be amazing again. Um, those guys, are, they're just awesome. Um, uh, you heard of Gordon Wenham? Gordon Wenham, very, very well, you've heard of Gordon Wenham, right? Very well-known Old Testament scholar. He, he was Thomas Rents's PhD supervisor. He came to do a guest lecture at Oak Hill. And he stood up and he said, I don't even know why you've got me here. Because you've got Thomas Rents on your faculty, why would you want to listen to me? You know. Anyway, why am I talking about this? I'm just excited. You know, praise is joy's appointed consummation, C.S. Lewis. Remember that? Anyway, right, we're done with that first slide. So any questions? Yeah, we've got Aaron and we've got Mrs. Bennett. Yeah, go ahead, Aaron. So you're talking about the structure of Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you're very likely right. Um, or some kind of parallel structures. It, um, some of the lines in your English Bible would be set out in poetry. Other lines aren't, but they still have a kind of poetic lilt to them. And they're kind of poetic or semi-poetic, and it's really an editorial decision whether you highlight that by indenting the lines in poetic form. Um, certainly parts of Genesis 1 are like that. Parts of Genesis 9 might be as well. And yeah, there are these kind of panel structures and chiastic structures and parallel structures all over the place. It's just how Hebrew literature works. Ancient, good Hebrew literature. Yeah, good work. Mrs. B, yeah. Um, I was thinking that it's interesting that the instructions about murder don't appear before Cain killed Abel. Yeah, so yeah. Not that it would have made any difference, mm. but what happened to Cain? So was his blood taken from him because he killed Abel, or did mm. God reserve that for the covenant with Noah? Yes, no, um, Cain didn't suffer the... Um, he went off and wandered. He went off and wandered, and God put a, God put a mark on him so that he wouldn't mm. be the victim of kind of re- re- retributive violence. You know, everyone who, whoever sees me will kill me. So God, put, God protected him somehow. Um, so yeah, this came later. And God is not normally in the business of um, retrospectively applying penalties that weren't known at the time. Right. But it's uh, interesting that, that yeah. Cain wandered, and if God had struck him, it mm. maybe would take forever for people to multiply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. And there is that. Um, it's, it's, it certainly ought to be seen as a response to the, the disaster of Genesis uh, f- uh, for and also of Lamech and his boasting about, you know, I've killed a man for wounding me. 
you know, this teenager bumped into me in the bar, so I took him outside and pasted him all over the road. You know, that's just... When you get to that sort of stage, that's not great. Mrs. Rivalin, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that is such a hopeless thought. It is. It's so incredibly sad because yes. you're just thinking about all the, all the godly people in the Bible that right. also had those same thoughts about mm-hmm. themselves. That right. God listened to them and didn't yeah. say, you're right, okay, you're done. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He worked with them and he listened and mm. Right. Bad, but, no. I mean, <laughs> yeah. The point is, it's so great that we have a God who is mm. um, not, I mean, it's sad that he doesn't have that. Right, exactly. And, and what you're saying is so helpful, KB, because this is why I like listening to stuff like this. It's kind of left field and, and provocative and stimulating because uh, it, it forces you to articulate a, a Christian alternative. And it highlights that alternative. So what you said is really helpful. Like, there will be days where you feel like it's terrible. And it's never that terrible. It's never hopeless. It's never that terrible. And maybe that example of that man, that sad man, not a believer, will be enough to stick in our minds and remind us that... So when we have the terrible things happen that make us feel that life is hopeless, which we've got because of Genesis 3, it's not hopeless. God doesn't think it's hopeless. God wants to preserve human life even through pain and suffering because he thinks it's valuable. Um, And, of course, there's all kinds of other invidious consequences. Like, for example, people will not so much estimate the low value of my life because I'm suffering, but the low value of that person's life because they have some handicap or they're suffering. And that's a very dark road. You've, that, that crops up in um, medical ethics, making a judgment about the, the, the quality of life of a person who has some uh, mental or physical disability. Uh, yeah, that's a sickening road to, to head down without, without breaks, as most many in our society are doing. So the value of life, the preciousness of of life is to be affirmed, yeah. Mr. Loki. It's fascinating that people like that, are, it's easy to say that when you have your life and you live your life, right? Yeah. You've been given the, the gift of life. Yeah, yeah. And now you're, propo- you know, you're a proponent of other people mm-hmm. not experiencing that. It's like people yes. who support abortion. Well, you were a, a fetus at one point. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. If you were a fetus, you would not be supporting abortion. Yeah, that, yeah, there aren't many votes from the unborn in favour of um, abortion legislation, yeah. I'm going to add, though, that I, I can understand that... Yeah. Uh, is it, I, I can understand the reason that God gave Noah the mandate again. Yeah. Because of the despair that could have been in his heart. Right. You think about all of the savagery that we read about, the every inclination of the yes. man being... Uh, only evil all the time. Yeah, you know, and so like, where's the hope? Where's yes, the, yes. You know, and, and, and you know, this, this isn't a distinctive right. that God is going to yes. continue to 
so the evil that everybody exactly. gets at this time. I mean, so I think it's, uh, it, it's understandable for people to latch onto that. Maybe even Christians to latch onto that. Yeah. You need to be, uh, need to be encouraged. This, this, this is yeah. No, and I, I, I've said this before, and I, Pastor Neil, and I'm sure you've said the same thing, we've, we've, we've wanted to encourage, um, particularly mums, uh, particularly either in the early years or when it just gets really exhausting when the numbers increase, in the tremendously uh, hard, long-term labor of being a mum. Because it's, it is the engine of the inbuilt, organic character of God's promises. Uh, it, if, if you just do some math for a second and you work out what the size of the church would be if we'd just done a good job of raising Christian kids for 2,000 years. Yeah, we, um, if, if you're being slightly cynical, right, and I've, I wouldn't want to be too cynical. You know, I, I've taught about evangelism a lot before, and, and I'm very, very keen on evangelism in context where it's where there are opportunities for it, reaching out to those who don't know Christ. But that often seems to me, and I've said this in evangelistic context, it often seems to me like pouring more water into a bucket that's got holes in the bottom. Like if you've got a bucket with holes in the bottom and you're trying to transport water across your backyard, the best thing to do is not to fill the bucket up with more water to start with, but to get a bucket that doesn't have holes in it. And actually where we are in the church is we've got a kind of leaky bucket, and the, the challenge really for us is to think, oh, okay, you know, we, we're not infinitely wise, not infinitely powerful. We will, we will fail in all kinds of ways, but what could we do that would be, that where we do a better job of, the, of seeing God's promises to his children fulfilled? And I, know it's, I don't want to say it's like this mechanical thing. And, and I certainly don't want to be pointing the finger at individuals. I do just think that we've got some lessons to learn. So... There are encouragements and there are you know, stimuli to self-examination and to repentance all over this. Yeah. All right. We're going to be, uh, yeah. Go ahead, Jacob. Yeah, um, so um, a ritual or hygiene, basically, it's not hygiene. There are loads and loads of things that you shouldn't do if you're, if you're going to be hygienic. And the Bible doesn't really seem concerned with most of those. <laughs> this, is, this is a seed of something that will crop up later, the, the sacrificial um, uh, regulations, and Leviticus 17 particularly. The life of the creature is in the blood. And so the blood is given you to make atonement for the life of whatever the creature represents impliedly. And that's straight after the Day of Atonement ritual with all the blood sprinkling and all that malarkey. So, yeah. The, the Old Testament food laws are not about hygiene. They, were, they, they passed away with the coming of Christ, not the invention of the refrigerator. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, let's move on because flip over the page. What I've got for you is um, you've already seen now We've got this trajectory with Adam and this relationship God's established with his people. And now we've moved on a few generations and we've got to Noah and there's some differences. Continuity with, with development. And we're starting to create this trajectory into the future. Now, 
I want to highlight some other specific details about God's covenant with Noah that we've not yet called attention to specifically. Some of them we have highlighted a little bit, but I want to just dig in a little bit more. And to do this, so flip over, there's six points here. Uh, I want to highlight God's grace in redemption, that redemption reinstates creation, that redemption recognizes families, that God's grace preserves society, that redemption aims towards all people, and that God establishes covenant signs. And we have 26 minutes, 21 minutes, so plus my three minutes of overtime. So six divided by 21 into six, so three minutes plus a bit for each one, and that gives us two minutes spare, and then I've got an extra half hour afterwards. No, I'm just joking. So let me work really quickly, and we'll see if we can get through these, and then we'll see how we get on. So first, notice the emphasis on the grace of God in redeeming his people. Everything has gone absolutely haywire. Genesis 6, 5. The wickedness of man is great in the earth. Pastor Shaw, you just read this again. I won't read it again. But it's that appalling scenario which is depicted at the beginning of Genesis 6. And then it said, verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, That does not mean Noah was really, really, really perfect and therefore God decided to save him. It's interesting because it says in verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. But we shouldn't interpret that to mean that Noah was sinlessly perfect. We, we have this misunderstanding um, that there's kind of sinful and sinless. Um, and that is true. Jesus is sinless. We're all sinful. But within the category sinful, it's possible to be faithful or unfaithful. Somebody who is conscious of being imperfect, who seeks God in prayer, who seeks forgiveness, who worships him in the way that they have been led to do up to that point in salvation history, whether through sacrifice, as Noah does, or in the tabernacle in the days of Moses, or in the way that we do under the new covenant. Somebody who lives like that and seeks God's forgiveness is in a different position in relationship with God than somebody who does all the same things but doesn't seek the forgiveness of God, doesn't seek him in prayer, doesn't seek to worship him, and doesn't recognize their own sin. Can you see the the distinction I'm making? So we're not to think Noah somehow earned his salvation any more than we are to think that we are those who've earned our salvation. Of course, I'd want to say that you're faithful. I'd say you're righteous. Pastor Neil and I, in the service every Sunday, declare that you're righteous. I don't know whether you noticed that. Your sins are forgiven. I'm not there by saying you're a perfect man. <laughs> I'm saying that you're, you're walking with God. And it's very interesting that that phrase is used at the end of verse 9. Noah walked with God. Can you see the, the distinction I'm making? And the flood, as an act of judgment, highlights God's grace in this way. Um, Noah didn't receive an instruction from God to learn to swim pretty quick. You got six weeks, and then you'll be able to save yourself. It was... Um, build an ark, 
build a shelter, and I, the Lord, will protect you. Uh, the Lord could quite easily have produced a flood and turbulence and waves big enough to wipe out that ark, however big and solid it was with all those animals in it. But it's, it's only God who can do what was done in Genesis 6 through 8 to save um, Noah in the way he did. And it's interesting, you get to the end of chapter 8, where Noah offers his sacrifice. And again, notice that this is what Noah does in response to having received and experienced the grace of God. Uh, Noah built, this is H20, Noah built an altar to the Lord after the flood had subsided and he's back on dry land, took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, which means that there's some kind of understanding that Noah has at this stage of how it's appropriate to worship God. We don't know how he attained that, but he must know something. And he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. This is a response to being a recipient of the grace of God. It's important to realize this because, well, here's a principle for you. The relationship between human obedience to the creator and God's initiative in grace is exactly the same everywhere throughout the Bible. Just think about that for a second. The relationship between human obedience to the creator and God's initiative in grace is exactly the same everywhere in the Bible. God's gracious initiative precedes, and we are called to obedience. Now, you might say there's a slight asterisk by that in Genesis 1 and 2 because sin hasn't even entered the equation yet, but still, life itself is a gift. Food is a gift. Adam was supposed to say thank you for the trees from which he ate and for the life and rest and wife and work that he had. And certainly at every point in the history of God's dealings with his people, God's grace precedes. The people of Israel did not, they weren't sitting in, in Egypt and God said, right, you want to get out of here? And they like, yes, please. I said, okay, well, look, here's the law. You go away and obey this for a couple hundred years and then we'll see what we can do. That's not what happened, is it? The Lord took pity on them, sent them a redeemer, whom they, well, not a redeemer, a kind of prophet leader, Moses, whom they despised, not for the last time in history, who led them out of slavery and having been rescued from slavery in ways that could only be the work of God, Red Sea, etc., plagues, they then were given the, the law as God's special people to show them how to honour him. And at every stage in salvation history, it's not like in the Old Testament there was works first and now in the New Testament there's grace first. Please banish all remaining thoughts of such nonsense from your minds so as to leave absolutely no trace of them. All happy? I hope you're happy about that, right? <laughs> because that's good. And all the things that we've just said, all the stuff we were talking about about children, all the things we were talking about and um, that we'll ever talk about now or any other time must have that framework. Everything is God's grace. We talked about it in relation to the final judgment, didn't we? God crowns his own work in us. Remember that, Barvink? Yeah, okay. All happy. So that the flood establishes that God's grace is not seen only in creation, Genesis 1, 
but also in redeeming his people from the consequences of their own sin. Second, redemption reinstates creation. This is quite important as well. In fact, it's all important. Um, the, The dominant way of understanding salvation in the American Bible-believing church today is could be characterized as snatching people from the burning deck of a sinking ship, correct? The world is going to hell in a handbasket. We've just got to get the heck out of here. Salvation means get the heck out of here, correct? The world is going downhill. The world is terrible. Um, it's destined for judgment and to perish in fire and what God is graciously doing is snatching people out of it so get out there and get moving because there might be a few people who you can save before the imminent return of Jesus that's, that's the um, the way in which this salvation is construed to put it another way it's like humanity was put on this boat and what we did was we torpedoed our own boat and set it on fire And now God is kindly sending helicopters to airlift people to safety off somewhere else, right? That is not what God is doing in history. You notice he put Noah right back on the same world and told him to do the same thing. He reinstated the original project. He didn't say, you know, that fill the earth and subdue it thing, clearly that's not going to work. Let's try something else. Yeah, he, he actually said, the, do the same things again, with some changes. But he's reinstating the original project. So it's not just saving souls, although it is saving souls. It's not, ju- it's not abandoning Genesis 1. And it's not, and this is like a little asterisk and a footnote when we talk about dispensationalism. It's not, okay, the era of Adam is over. The era of Noah has begun, completely separate, disconnected. Dispensationalism recognizes an Adamic period and a Noahic period, but wrongly puts them in hermetically sealed boxes so they don't interact with each other. Well, that's not what we're talking about either. What God is doing, you're back on that ship that you torpedoed and set on fire, um, God is uh, pointing out um, how to... Uh, no, better, it's better than that. He's dropping fire extinguishers. And... Uh, in fact, he came himself with one massive great big fire extinguisher and went, and put the fire out. And then he's down in the hole, patching it up, and he's saying, come, come down here, let's do this together. And his disciples are like, wow, this is, this is great. We've finally got somebody who can sort the mess out. And then he says to them, well, I'm going soon. They're like, what? John 13. He says, don't worry, I'll send somebody else to be with you, another counsellor to be with you, even the spirit of truth. The fire has been put out. The ship's safe. It's going to be fine. Hmm. A bunch of people have jumped off the deck into the water and the, the, the hull still needs a bit of patching up. Oh, um, goodbye. And the church is that spirit-filled community not being airlifted off the deck of the ship to go somewhere else, but trying to fix, by God's grace, the mess that we've made of things and grabbing people out of the water to join us on the original project. Can you see the difference? I don't know whether that illustration works for you guys, but I kind of quite like it, so there we are. (laughs) 
there's a danger if I kind of go off with that illustration, it could develop in all kinds of quirky ways, but I might keep moving. Um, and notice some other hints of the same thing emerging. I mean, in the beginning, you've got um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Um, the uh, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So, waters, Spirit hovering. Genesis 6, 7, 8, waters, bird hovering. And creation consists initially of the land appearing from beneath the waters, where there's light first and stuff, obviously, in Genesis 1. And then you've got the land appearing from beneath the receding waters in Genesis 8. It looks like a recreation. Um, and in fact, the, 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 who remembers the order of the birds, by the way? The birds in um, Genesis 8? Come on. What, what were the birds? Raven, dove, 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 not a pterodactyl. <laughs> Raven, like flying around, doesn't know what to do. It's like, okay, that's really clever. Um, then a dove, um, then another dove came back with an olive branch. Then the third dove, the fourth bird, um, that didn't come back. Where did that dove land? I love it. This was Roy Atwood up at New St. Andrews who pointed this out to me. Where does that dove land? Well, it must land on the ground, right? Not, doves aren't going to live on the water because they live like... But it's, its landing is not narrated in the Bible. The next time you get a dove landing anywhere is in Matthew chapter 1, where a dove lands on the head of Jesus. Which is kind of interesting, isn't it? At the baptism of Jesus. Is that Matthew chapter 1? No, Matthew chapter 1. It's uh, Matthew chapter 3. Mark chapter 1. Matthew 3. So the dove takes off, and the dove is like the spirit, hovering, fluttering over the surface of the waters. And the dove then descends in the form of the spirit upon the head of the Messiah, who therefore must be a bit like the newly recreated land in Genesis 9. It's a new creation. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Hold on a second. Are you telling me like the Bible fits together somehow? Yes, can you see? Um, and the, the Hebrew word for dove is, anybody know? You'll, you'll never forget this if I tell you. It's Yonah, which we translate into English as Jonah. Jonah. Very good. So there's a prophet whose name means dove. What's the prophet told to do? Go and evangelize the nations. What does he do? He says, stuff that. I'm not going to those nations. They're horrible. They might repent. And the Lord has to try and tell him that, yeah, no, I really, really do care about those people, and even their cows. So please would you go and evangelize the nations. And probably he was repented, which is why he wrote the book down, because otherwise it'd be a bit humiliating to write that down. Um, so the dove spirit that recreates the world in Genesis 9, recreates the world in the book of Jonah, evangelized the Ninevites, recreates the world in Christ, Matthew 3, Mark 1, and then recreates us as we're baptized into Christ. So there's another way you can trace the whole history of the Bible with just the image of a dove, right? Um, but notice, behind all that, you've got Genesis 9 is like a replay of Genesis 1. Second, oh my goodness, four more, and we've got five minutes, six minutes. Um, number three, 
Redemption recognises families. Uh, Noah is a righteous man. Noah walked with God. So Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. God said to Noah, go into the ark, you, and leave your kids behind, because I'm really not interested in saving your children. Said nobody ever. So bring your kids with you. Can you see the same theme we saw before? Um, Bless Noah and his sons. Yeah? Uh, Again, I mean, if you start thinking about the work of the Spirit within this framework, you get to Acts chapter 2. Um, after Peter's sermon, all the assembled company come and say, well, what should we do? We've just gone and crucified the Messiah. That was a mistake. And he says, Peter says, repent and be baptized, all of you, for the promises for you and for all who are far off. Um, uh, all in the Lord God... Sorry, I've missed out the bit that I was actually meaning to draw your attention to. Repent and be baptized, all of you, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That's me missing out the important bit. The, the gift of the Spirit, dove which is, which accompanies profession of faith in Christ and is marked in baptism, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Redemption recognises families. And so we, we'll be expecting now, won't we, as the story of history continues, that God is going to be blessing and welcoming our families into the community of the people of God. Yeah. Uh, number four, we've talked about this already, so I won't say much more about this. God's grace preserves society. God's, God is keen on keeping the human race alive for long enough for them to be saved. The um, legislation about murder. Uh, Genesis 9:11 speaks in a similar way with this, the sign of the rainbow, which we're going to come to in a second. But God says, I establish my covenant with you uh, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Well, I'm, what's, what's the Lord doing? Uh, the, the covenant is a sign that there's never going to be a destruction like that again, because God is going to preserve humanity. Um, you've actually got it in the previous verse. Uh, verse 9, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you on the ark, as many as came out of the ark. There is, God's aim hasn't shrunk down. It's not like he's saying, you know, I was a bit ambitious with the Adam thing, fill the earth and subdue it. Let's just, let's just have you, Noah, because you're a decent bloke. It's, no, no, we're going to preserve this world so that many can be saved. And Second Peter 3, 9, you know, picks up this theme and uses it as an illustration of God's patience. That's why Jesus hasn't come in judgment in whichever way is mentioned in that text because he's patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but all to reach repentance. Which is highlighted in the fifth point, the redemption that God promises is aimed towards all people. We don't yet know that it's going to reach literally absolutely everybody, but God is keen to preserve everybody and the covenant is with all flesh who's on the earth there's some commitment god is making to every living creature that he's not going to wipe them all out with a flood again which is good and then finally number six this sign of the rainbow and this is really fascinating because um when you see a rainbow what do you think 
when little kids look out the window and they see a rainbow, what, are they, what sort of sounds do they make? Ooh. Ah. Oh, beautiful. Um, what is a rainbow, exactly? It's in the shape of a weapon. Very good. Thank you. Not pointed down towards Earth. That's good. But it's, the word for bow is, it's not like something other than just a bow, as in bow and arrow. It's the thing you fire a weapon with. So what you've got to imagine is that um, God sits down at a table with every human being who exists, all eight of them. And he says, right, uh, <clears throat> let's talk about this faithfulness thing. And it, he takes his sword out of its sheath and puts it on the table. Then he says again, Let's talk about this faithfulness thing, shall we? Can you see what he's saying? It's like, this isn't pointed at you, but I'm serious about this. I'm serious about this. It's, not, it's pointed up, because, you know, firearm safety. You don't go waving it around, flagging people, finger on the trigger, anything. It's, it's safely hung on the wall. But, goodness... If there is, who is it, the playwright, I can't remember who it was, who said, if there's a, a sword hung on the wall in Act 1, it's probably going to be used to kill somebody by the end of Act 3. God is not messing around. The rainbow is a sign that he means it. He's done it before. Second Peter 3 says he'll do it again, just in another way, not with a flood. And so you can see now more of the shape of history being plotted, God is determined to show grace to the entire world. And he sits down at the table with you, puts an unsheathed sword on the table between us and says, right, now let's talk about your faithfulness. Are you going to be committed to follow me and to be faithful to me? All right, we got uh, zero minutes, apart from our three minutes of overtime. So any Final comments or thoughts you want to throw into the mix before we pray and head off? A hand going up? No? Okay. Are we going to finish, like, actually on time? I don't know what to do with these three minutes of my life, then. Um, okay, we should finish. Um, as usual, if you want to hang out and chat a little bit here, then please do so. Those of you who joined us remotely, um, I hope it was helpful for you and not um, uh, missed out too much by not being here. Uh, we're going to continue... Next week, I believe. Mrs. Bennett has her hand up. I think you need to clear the floor for a dance tomorrow. Okay, right, wonderful. We, we've got some instructions about sorting out the floor here, so I'll give those in a moment. Let me pray first, and then I'll get somebody up here to give those instructions, and then we can go. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for your grace to our forefather, Noah. Uh, we thank you for his faithfulness to you and his boldness in living faithfully in an age when yeah, he was and must have felt really alone. And we thank you for highlighting in your developing relationship with him many aspects of your plan for the future and of your grace towards us. And as we see your plan unfolding through the scriptures, we pray that you would amaze us and equip us to live with faithfulness in the light of it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty, Pastor Shaw. Uh, did you have some idea about how we're going to set up here? Do you want to talk no, with Mrs. Bennett? Actually, I had not, I had not thought about that yet. Right, so the dance.
Right. So, Mrs. Bennett, give me a clue here. Let me just turn this recording off. 